Remembering back a long time ago, it was back in second grade for me, quite a few years ago. My favorite teacher was my second grade teacher. Her name was Mrs. Rudisel. Uh, she was the best. Everyone loved Mrs. Rudisel. She was kind. She was loving. Everyone adored her. Uh, when I was 10 years old, we moved just about a block away from Mrs. Rudisel's house. And I would actually go down to her house in the summer because she had an air hockey table in her basement. And she would play air hockey with me when I was 10 years old. What an incredible, wonderful teacher. Well, one day in second grade, she handed me an envelope, a sealed envelope, on, the, on my way out of school. And she gave me instructions to give that envelope to my parents as soon as I got home. And I panicked, absolutely panicked. What in the world would Mrs. Rudisel want to send my parents a note for? What would she want to tell them? What did she possibly have to tell them? What did, what, what did I do wrong that my teacher wanted to send a note home? And so I thought of all the things that I might have done wrong. I thought of all the things that fr my friends did wrong that I might get blamed for. I thought uh, about the math tables, the addition and the subtraction tables that I was really struggling with. Anything so that I could figure out why in the world she handed me an envelope that on the front of it said, to the parents of Brian Etock. <sighs> Quite a few years have passed since second grade, but I remember riding on the school bus home that day, and I was a nervous wreck. I'm dead. I'm dead. This is it. My life is over. My parents are going to be so disappointed in me. They're going to be so mad at me. And I tried, you know, I tried looking through that little small opening in an envelope. You know what I'm talking about? That little tiny opening to peek and see. I couldn't see what was inside. And, and so then I tried to slowly and laboriously open up the seal of the envelope. And the seal was too strong. It wasn't a fresh seal. This envelope had been sealed for a long time. It wasn't like the cheap scotch tape that our parents used to wrap our Christmas presents. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> That was a cinch to open. I love this time because my mom is here and I get to, I get to uh, tell her all the things that I did wrong as a kid. And there's nothing that she can do about it right now because I'm, I'm preaching. That's awesome. So whew, on the bus, I had to sweat it out. It was the longest ride home ever. I handed the envelope to my mom when I got home and I awaited my fate. Would I be grounded? What level of parental disappointment was going to fall upon me, right? And she opened up the letter and she read it. Now, if I'm thinking back on it, perhaps the cute little jungle scene on the front of the envelope with the tiger that was smiling might have given me an idea. <laughs> but I thought the worst. To a seven-year-old, whatever is what was inside of that envelope was going to seal my fate. Dear parents, I just wanted to write to you to inform you how well Brian is doing in second grade. <laughs> Are you serious? I worried about this for nothing. I mean, I thought I was going to be killed. My life was going to be over at that moment. Was she going to find out about the spit wads that I threw in class? I, oh. 
Now, in retrospect, I mean, I was the perfect child, so there wasn't anything, <laughs> there wasn't anything to worry about, right? Uh, but I think that bus ride will shed a few years off of my life. How many of you have been in a similar predicament where you have allowed the fear of the unknown, the fear of what might happen to absolutely paralyze you, where you make a really big deal out of nothing? I bet you every single one of us have done that, right? You probably didn't have a note from your second grade teacher that ended your life, but we've all been in that same predicament, right? Our story today is a story of, of fear, and it's perhaps a, it's a story about the lowest self-esteem of somebody that we would find in God's word. But it's also a story of redemption. It's a story of recognizing somebody's worth. And it's a perfect example of how we should be in our second value here at PFN, and that is that we are to be a valued people. So it's found in the Old Testament. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 9. So if you uh, have your Bible with you this morning or maybe your electronic device, I want you to look that up. 2 Samuel chapter 9. Before we read today's passage, while you're looking it up, let me give you a little bit of groundwork, the history behind this passage here. This story happened about 3,000 years ago. About 1,000 years before the birth of Jesus himself. And it happened in ancient Israel. Israel is located right on this major trade route. So if you controlled the area of Israel, if you controlled that region, you literally controlled the trade all the way from Europe, all the way down to Africa. On one side of Israel is the Mediterranean Sea. On the other side of Israel is vast deserts and mountains, an impassable uh, area. So if you controlled that fertile area there where Israel is, you controlled everything. And so during that time, just much like today, it's a territory of a whole lot of wars. And Israel's first king, Saul, had recently died along with his son, Jonathan, in a battle. And the next king is going to be King David. And David is the same David, if you're familiar with the story, where David killed the giant Goliath years and years before. But David and Jonathan, the son of Saul, were best friends. And before Jonathan was killed in battle, he and David made a pact with one another, a covenant with one another, that if something should happen to Jonathan, that David would forever protect his family. And so David is now king. And he remembers one day this covenant, this promise that he made to his best friend, Jonathan. So 2 Samuel chapter 9, read with me. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's. Remember, Saul was the former king, Jonathan's father. There was a servant of Saul's household named Zeba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Zeba at your service? He replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Zeba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan, but he is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. 
Zebah answered, he is at the house of Mekar, son of Emil in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar from the house of Mekar, son of Amimil. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, this story would have been a whole lot easier and the sermon would have been a whole lot shorter had Saul named his son Joe or Chad or something like that, but he didn't. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. And David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore you to all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Zeba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Zeba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Zeba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. This is a 3,000 year old story, but it mirrors perfectly uh, what's happening today. Because all of us, all of us here in this sanctuary today, all of us watching online, anybody who might watch this service in the future, all of us are called by the king, the one true king. We have been restored or we can be restored. We get to eat at the king's table forever and ever. And this story is also a perfect example of our second value. For PFN has been placed here for people to feel valued. All of us have things of value, don't we? Carol and I recently had the opportunity where we met with somebody that's helping us with our finances and making some wise choices. We're getting ready for retirement because we woke up one day and we realized that we're old. <laughs> and part of the process of that is you have to take a value of what you own. And you need to look at all of your assets and your home and your investments. For each one of those things that we have holds a value, doesn't it? For some of those things, it was easy to place a value on, right? Uh, they're worth something because we had to buy them. The TV holds value. The truck holds value. Hopefully the truck holds more value than the TV, but the truck holds value, right? But there were other things that were impossible to place a dollar amount on. There were other things that were impossible to assign a monetary value. Pictures, an heirloom, and family. How do you assign a value to any of those things? How would you ever assign a value to your family, to your friends? It's not like they have a dollar sign on their forehead. Things like that are invaluable because things like that are absolutely irreplaceable. 
The fact that all of you are, here's the fact that all of you here today are also irreplaceable. You do not hold a monetary value because you are worth more than any money that is in this world. We don't define our our loved ones by placing a monetary value on them. We define their value by what kind of sacrifice that we would be willing to make in order to keep them around, in order to make sure that they are blessed, in order to care for them. We define their value by how much sacrifice we would give to keep them. And David and Mephibosheth is a perfect example also of what Jesus has done for us as a church and as individuals. I want to show you a few similarities between this story, this 3,000 year old story and what we are going through today. And I hope that you see yourself in the story of Jesus as well. And uh, by the way, I'm sorry that you don't have any sermon notes today. Um, I had this sermon written out. Uh, I was going through the process. I had some time on Friday to make all of the notes for you. And I felt the Holy Spirit nudging me and saying, all that stuff that you just wrote down this week, I don't want you to say any of it. It's not what I've asked you to say. And so I had to do what pastors hate doing. And I highlighted it all and hit delete. And so then I had just a few moments and I really believe that this are, these are the things that God wanted me to say. So I'm sorry we did not have time uh, to make notes for you uh, today to follow along. But uh, on your bulletin, you have like this much space that you can take notes. So write really small because we got a few points to go through. Okay. Um, the first thing that I want you to recognize today is that Mephibosheth was called by the king. You can call him Joe or Chad. He, he doesn't know, okay? So if you need to say, save some space, uh, Mephibosheth was called by the king. David remembered this covenant that, uh, and inquired about it when he asked, is anybody left from the house of Saul so that I can show them kindness? If this were to happen today, here's what probably would have happened. David would have gone on Facebook And he would have posted, hey, does anyone know if there's somebody left from Saul's family? I need to get a hold of them. And somebody would have shared David's post to get the word out for him. And then somebody would have tagged Zeba. And David and Zeba would have been introduced. And then David would send Mephibosheth a friend request. And they would get connected. And I know this sounds so cliche for a pastor to say this because it is absolutely cliche for a pastor to say this, but Jesus has sent you a friend request. Now, before you roll your eyes at me, because that was cheesy, (laughs) I want you to think of the implications of that. The son of God, the creator of our universe, the one that with a single word created our heavens and our earth, the sun and the sky, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, That guy wants to be your friend. That guy wants to be part of your life. That guy wants you to know everything there is to know about him. And even more, he wants to know everything about you. That's the guy. Why? Because Jesus sees value in you. He sees value in you. 
And he is constantly pulling you closer to himself. And if you have been created in the image of God, then Jesus wants to bring you closer to him so you know what that looks like. And secondly, number two, Mephibosheth recognized David as the king. Think about this. Mephibosheth was royalty, right? He was the rightful heir to the throne of his grandfather, Saul. Uh, But he just wasn't living like royalty. If things were the way that they were supposed to be, then Mephibosheth would have been living in the palace, not David. Yet Mephibosheth recognized that David was the true king. For many years ago, David, uh, before he assumed the throne, the prophet Samuel came and anointed David that he would be the next king. And so it didn't matter to Mephibosheth if he thought of himself as the rightful king or not, the one that should have been in charge. He recognized that God was the one that made David king. And as much as people around you, as much as Oprah or anybody from Hollywood would want you to believe it, you are not the king of your world either. See, we live in a world now where the relative truth has become whatever makes us happy. That's what we think is truth. Whatever might bring me pleasure, whatever I think is true. But the real truth is, is that none of us are the center of our universe. We are not the kings in our reality. And here's the simple truth for us this morning. Unless you can point your finger and make a mountain or a fish or a star appear in the, uh, in the sky, unless you can do that, I don't think that you get to say that you're the king. I can't do that. You can't do that, but there is one who can, and he's the king. If I take God out of the equation in my life, the only thing that I've ever made is a mess, and that's it. I need direction, so do you. And who better to yield to than the one who knows everything about your past, but yet can guide you into his preferred future. And we can go more, we can get a whole lot deeper into this premise that Jesus is the one true king. We don't have time for that this morning, perhaps another day or another series. But number three, if you're writing really small and taking notes, Mephibosheth also bowed before his king. Verse 8 says, Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Now there's a couple things going on here. First, uh, sort of like that letter that I had to hand to my mom in second grade, Mephibosheth thought his life was over. He thought it was done. This is it. There's nothing, nothing past today. He literally thought he was going to die. For in those days, if you had become king, then what you should be doing is finding the relatives of anybody that was the former king. Because you don't want one of them claiming your right to the throne. So Mephibosheth, being the last of the descendants of King Saul, thought his life was done. He thought it was over. And so he bowed out of respect for the king out of self-preservance. And he acknowledged that the king had power over his life. 
And so number four here, Mephibosheth also examined himself before his king. This is what else is happening in that verse. In verse eight, he calls himself a dead dog. Mephibosheth is the epitome of a, somebody with poor self-esteem, right? See, his story was he had been crippled. He could not walk since he was five years old. There, when the war where his grandfather and his father were killed, his nurse or his babysitter or his nanny took off with him and in, the, in her flee to escape, she dropped him. And his legs were probably broke and he had never walked since. And in those days, if somebody had a handicap, they were considered an outcast of society. They were thought that they had done something in their life that was so sinful, or perhaps they were a punishment of their ancestors' sinful choices. And also, he came from a place called Lodabar, which if you translate into our modern day English, literally means he came from the place of nothing. His name, Mephibosheth, the Bosheth part, the second part of his name, means shame. And the last thing I want you to do is come out of our service today and think of yourselves as a, as a dead dog. But in comparison to our king, the Bible tells us that every single one of us here have fallen short of the glory of God. There is none of us in this room, there is none of us that are watching online that has lived a life free from sin. All of us are in the same boat. We are all sinners in need of grace from a forgiving God. And our king is a holy God. Our king is one without blemish or stain and he lived a perfect life so that at the end of his life, he could stand in our place and receive the punishment that we deserve. Who are we but a dead dog compared to the one who put his life on a cross, allowed himself to be nailed to it and die an agonizing death? We are not worthy of such a sacrifice. We are not worthy of someone else's death. And so it's so easy for us to take our value for granted, how valued you are. Remember, our loved ones don't have a monetary value on their forehead. We assign value to our friends and our family based on the sacrifice that we would be willing to make in order that they are blessed. And you... There are more value, you are valuable enough that someone would sacrifice their very life so that you could live and have a life that's abundant and so that you could be forgiven and saved. And so PFN, our, our church here is a place where we value others for we are equal recipients of this grace and this mercy of God, grace and mercy that we don't deserve. And so I want you to look around this room today. Before you are other men and women. There are teenagers and there are kids. That God would tell them, I love you enough. That I place such great value 
in you that I would give up my son for you. In a few moments, we have a a time where we get to come together in self-examination before we take communion. But this morning, I want you not just to focus on our depravity, but I want you to focus on your worth. Focus on the sacrifice that God has made for you. And as we close here, number five is Mephibosheth then took his place at the king's table. From that moment forward, Mephibosheth sat at the king's table. And why is this important? Because a table of the king would be a place of honor. Only powerful people, only highly valued people would sit at the king's table. And David saw so much value in Mephibosheth that he wanted him at his table. Notice this though. Mephibosheth is lame. He cannot walk. His obstacle, his, his uh, handicap was a source of shame, something that tormented him his entire life. It wasn't something that was done or that he did on his own. It was done for him, yet he had to live with the consequences of somebody else's action. Maybe that's you. Yet at the table of the king, he is seen as an equal to the king. When Mephibosheth sat down at the table of the king, nobody could tell that Mephibosheth is lame, is crippled, that he cannot walk. The table of the king hides everything that he considered wrong. And you are invited to the exact same table with us this morning. For that table that from David's time, that king's table, has extended all the way through time until here today. Now David has rightfully moved from the place of king and allowed Jesus to sit down as king. And we get to come this morning in communion to the king's table. The Apostle Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians wrote these words about, our commu- about communion. He said, the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This morning, we're going to invite you to have your rightful seat at the king's table. And hopefully you grab communion on the way out and you can go ahead and peel that top part back and remove the bread. The church of the Nazarene believes in an open communion, which for us that just means that uh, you don't have to be Nazarene, that you don't have to be baptized in order to participate in communion. But what we do believe is that all of us come to the table after self-examination. We come to the table recognizing our worth. And we have worth because of the sacrifice that God made for us. So this morning, before we partake of communion, I'm just going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. I want you to come to the table recognizing just how valuable and how worthy you are to sit at the table with the king. For at the table of the king, everything that you might think is wrong, 
everything that you might think is shameful is hidden. For at the table of the king, you are an equal. You are an heir with Christ. And so, Lord, we come to your table today. We self-examine ourselves. And Lord, maybe this is the first time for one of our people here or that's watching online would come to your table and say, I need to come to your table worthy. And the only way I can do that is to accept the sacrifice that you have made for me. And so Lord, they may just silently pray, Lord Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are. And that because of your death, the price that I need to pay is gone. And I ask you to be part of my life. Thank you for seeing me so worthy that you would invite me to your table. And so all of us that are Christians, even those that may have just prayed that prayer, we take the body of Christ and we do as Jesus did and we break it. And we give thanks. Thank you, Jesus, for giving up yourself. Thank you for allowing your body to be crushed, for paying the price of our sins. And so together as a church, we eat. You can open up the juice. Jesus said this juice represents the new covenant. For in the old ways, someone would have to bring a a perfect animal to be sacrificed to atone for our sins. But now I've already paid that price. I am the perfect lamb and I have already died for you. And so Lord Jesus, we thank you for your blood that was spilled that day on the cross. We thank you that because of it, we can be forgiven. And that as we are seated at your table, you don't see our sinfulness. You don't see them things that we've done in the past. You see us and you look at us eye to eye and you tell us you are worthy enough. You are valued enough that I died for you. And so together as a church, let us drink. Lord Jesus, again, we thank you for your sacrifice that you have given us. We thank you for loving us enough. We thank you for seeing all the things that we have done in the past and may do in the future, but Lord, you still consider us worthy enough to give up your life for. You value us that much. Lord, may we do the same to all those that we come into contact with. May we love them. May we count them valued because there is no sacrifice that we wouldn't do for them. Lord Jesus, we thank you for communion today. We thank you for this uh, special time that your church gets to have with you as we remember you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen, Jesus. Thank you. You're dismissed. I love you. Thank you very much for coming to the table with me today.